0: So we've been practicing together for a bit over a day, I guess, since we arrived. One of the questions that uh, perhaps arises for us when we when we sit and when we practice together, as we as we have been, sometimes it arises in the sense of you know, what am I doing here? So I think we mentioned earlier. And I'd like to speak about the process of, of meeting our experience and particularly meeting those elements that we might find challenging. It's natural and understanding, understandable to imagine that we're, we're here to learn how to meditate. Sounds like that's what the point of this exercise might be. And of course there's a certain truth in it. But more fundamentally, I would suggest that we're here to to see the truths of our hearts, of our minds, of our lives, to explore the potential that we have for living a a life that is free, that is awake, that embodies a a compassion and a, a depth of peace and well-being, in ourselves and for the life around us. And yet, of course, this possibility, this isn't where we start from, or so it seems. We encounter ourselves where we are. And this is a good thing. When I first encountered these teachings and practices, I was travelling in Asia seems like a long time ago now. In other ways, it doesn't seem that long ago at all. And I can remember very clearly the, uh, having just sat my first retreat and really not having a clue what had just happened apart from something in it was really good. And I wanted to do it again. But I didn't really know what on earth we'd been doing or why we were doing it. And I found a book in a little bookshop in, in New Delhi. Written by a uh, a monk, a, a Buddhist monk. His name was Nyanaponika, and there was a phrase in it right at the beginning. The book was called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, and there was a phrase in the beginning that really, or passage that struck me very powerfully. He wrote this. He wrote this mind, and I'm just going to slightly translate it, retranslate it, because the word he's referring to. I think more usefully is translated as understanding is our, our heart-mind. Because in, in Buddhist teaching and practice, when we talk about heart and mind, we, we see them as being part of the, uh, in a way the same organ, which is called citta in the Buddha's teaching. It's the word that refers to that which is sensitive and responsive, that which is affected and has the ability to respond to experience. And he he said, and he wrote, this this heart-mind is bound all over, but it can know freedom here and now. And this was a striking phrase or sentence to encounter. (coughs) This heart-mind is bound all over, and yet it can know freedom here and now. And we could, I think, usefully contemplate this phrase a little. What is it to be bound all over? To experience ourselves, I think, in the group of forces that constrict, that restrict, that limit our experience, our life, our capacity in many ways. Forces that bind us in ways that do not support the well-being, the peace, the freedom, (coughs) the happiness that we seek, and yet which we seem somehow not easily able to free ourselves from. The Buddha himself, in his teachings in one passage, spoke perhaps in a similar way. He said, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant. But it is clouded by attachments that visit it. It's an interesting idea. This heart and mind are clouded by forces, we could say, that visit. And when we hear a phrase like that, visit, we realize that, oh, maybe they aren't intrinsic, maybe they aren't inherent to this heart and mind. To its fundamental and essential nature. I remember my teacher in India Melinda saying, No, you know it comes from outside the mind? And he was referring once, I think we were talking about anger. He said, it comes from outside the mind? Like, no, it's going on inside the mind as far as I can tell. And yet he was very clear, it comes from outside the mind. So it's an interesting perspective. I'll pick it up again a little later. But that sense of being visited by challenging, by difficult experiences. The visitors, we could say, it's really important that we see clearly what's going on. In this process where we're being asked to be present, it seems like a simple thing, really, doesn't it? You know, if we were to explain to our friends or family who'd never done something like this what we did, on the first day of the retreat while well, we sat down they gave us a soft cushion or a comfortable chair told us not to do anything then we were told to go and sort of walk back and forth but don't go anywhere don't go very far just go slowly you know 40 minutes or so and then come and sit down again stand around for a bit eat some food you know try and be present and mindful and at the end of the day you know our body's aching our mind is exhausted it's like wow what happened what was going on there for, for many, it's an incredibly arduous 24 hours, or demanding or challenging in some way. And yet, from the outside, it looks like that should have been easy, shouldn't it? Of course, we know it's not. And what makes it challenging is the, the tendencies, the forces, the patternings in the heart and mind that have perhaps had a place, or had their roots in a place or are rooted in a place where they did serve in some way, but in fact have become limiting and binding for our lives, and that there's a natural yearning in our hearts to be free, to to know, to discover, to embody more and more fully what is possible for us as human beings, which perhaps we sense, but don't necessarily know, haven't yet discovered and developed the pathway of actualizing that possibility, making it real in our lives. So the tradition speaks of, and it was obviously uh, some of what was there in the, in the questions this, uh, this afternoon, speaks of five particular patternings, forces, tendencies, energies that we engage, that we encounter that are sometimes called hindrances, but I think are more usefully understood as challenges. And some of you will have heard of these many times, perhaps known them very well. A friend and colleague, uh, Kinchino, once talked about his uh, close relationship to one of them to the extent of having gone for a walk with this particular quality on his arm, so to speak, as if they uh, were good friends the forces that we need to understand to make it hard for us to engage in what would otherwise be a very simple thing being present being awake which i'd like to speak about uh, the force of craving a sort of a greedy grasping for experience or aversion the fear or resistance or anger to experience restlessness which we touched about touched on this afternoon and likewise Drowsiness or sleepiness, sometimes translated rather wonderfully as sloth and torpor. And sceptical doubt, a sense of lacking in confidence that we need, the confidence we need. Sometimes we might hear these things and recognise them very clearly. Others we might not be quite sure what that might be. And it's clear that they're powerful. If we look and see what's happening in the moments when we're not able to be present or when we realize we've become lost, it's highly likely that one or more of these forces have been acting in the mind and in the heart. And we haven't necessarily noticed them, or perhaps we have seen them, but we've not actually (coughs) been able to handle them in a way so as to not be pulled by them. It's as if we're on a journey here. In a sense, it's a journey to where we are, not to somewhere else. It's a journey to what we are. We're not going somewhere else. We're not trying to become someone else. But nonetheless, it is a journey because we so easily are distant from where we are. We're so often, it seems, not in touch with the depths of who and what we are. And so that journey is a journey of return. And yet in that journey, that journeying, it's like we have a certain intention and destination and yet very easily we get pulled away. And every time we go off on another little side journey, we can see that it extends, it lengthens, it makes more demanding and challenging. This journey of returning to our heart, to the centre of our life, we could say. And so, one of the things that's useful is to contemplate these experiences rather than as annoying, difficult, painful, or possibly embarrassing things that I keep doing or keep happening to me, which is the way we often tend to think about it. We can see them as visitors. And how is it, what's an appropriate way to meet a visitor? <coughs> we certainly encounter these visitors and. Uh, Sometimes the sense is almost like we have someone comes to knock on the door. We let them in and we say, hey, would you like to take over? You can live here. You can be here. And we forget who lives in our home. It's like it becomes inhabited by something else. Who we recognize in a certain way isn't quite who we are. And yet, we're not quite sure that we're not that either. There's a, a very, for me, poignant phrase in the prophet by Khalil Gibran, there's many in fact, but this particular one. He's speaking about uh, this kind of process, and he talk, he's talking about the power of the wish to be comfortable, the power of wanting more pleasant and comfortable conditions, and he says, the lust for comfort. That stealthy thing that enters the house as a guest, and then becomes the host. And then the master. And there's something about that, and it's not to say there's anything wrong with a little comfort. But we if we make comfort the most important thing, it becomes our master. And it isn't a comfortable place to be in that situation where comfort has become our master and yet of course to fight against these patterns to feel like somehow I can't let them and I've got to stop them happening that equally doesn't really serve us so we need to recognise just <clears throat> what's going on here, to make space for, to not regard as an obstacle. It's interesting that the translations of the word, the early translations that describe it as a hindrance to practice have become quite embedded in the consciousness of many meditators I think to think of it as a hindrance which really does sound like a problem like, and it really should be gotten rid of and in fact when the Buddha speaks of these forces as hindrances he's speaking of them in a very specific context which is that they are hindrances to the ability of the mind to become still to become com- focused and steady. So they're primarily hindrances to samatha. They're not hindrances to the possibility or obstacles to the possibility of insight or of opening. In fact, they can be great doorways for those possibilities. If we identify with them, As being the ultimate or the absolute expression of who we are in this moment, then of course we lose the capacity to see them as visitors. If we see them clearly, however, they have no capacity in themselves (coughs) to distort what's going on. They're just uncomfortable, they're just kind of unflattering. They're sort of like, doesn't look like great meditation in one sense. And funny as it is, perhaps it's not funny. It's also, again, kind of painful for us, I think. It's kind of tender. We'd kind of like to be doing well at this, most of us. It kind of feels a bit like, "Mm, I'm not doing well when these kind of forces are playing out. To see this experience is arising, just as this breath arises, just as a sound arises, so too these constructed, these patterned, these habitual ways of engaging or relating or experiencing show up. And they show up in certain conditions to not reject or judge them, but to name and to know, oh, this is what's happening. Neither to abandon oneself, oh, well, it's happening, I might as well just kind of go with it for a while. There's a certain courage and dedication that's required, a certain commitment and firmness to what it is that's really important for you, for us in practice. And so with that I find it kind of heartening to reflect on the the conclusion that we tend to make if we're caught up in restlessness or sleepiness, if we're feeling sort of a lack of confidence in the practice or in our ability to practice, which is skeptical down, or if we're kind of overwhelmed by wanting something or struggling with resistance and aversion so easily, we kind of feel like, oh, it's not working. I can't do this. And yet interestingly, in the story of the Buddha, the story of his awakening, his remarkable journey of discovery, in fact, he experienced all of these intensely, powerfully, and in very difficult ways, on the night of his awakening. So you might experience such things and think, gosh, I'm a long way from freedom. A long way from some... New discovery or opening, but in fact, it's not true. The very nature of the process we're engaging in is going against very deeply rooted and powerful patterns of conditioning, which, as we cease or as we no longer so unconsciously and um, habitually comply with their particular directives and urges, as part of the kind of the the response of the structure, they present these forms of um, reactivity, which we call the hindrances, which we call the challenges in meditation, (coughs) to try and kind of shift us back into the familiar and the habitual mode. And the fact that they're arising is actually a sign that we are challenging something. That we're in a place where there is the possibility for something to open. That doesn't mean that if things are going seems reasonably steadily, or we feel there's a calmness and a quiet, and there isn't a lot of aversion or desire, there isn't restlessness or sleepiness or doubt. Having it doesn't mean we need to then generate some in order to actually feel like, okay, this is I need something fruitful here to work on. You know, it's that I'm not suggesting that at all. But if that's what's happening, it's like, okay, can I see that? Can I learn to meet it skillfully? To not turn away from our life. This is really one of the fundamental invitations of this practice, of these teachings, of what we're doing here together. To not turn away. To notice all the ways that we habitually do turn away. And all of these particular patternings have the effect of distancing us or disconnecting us from the immediacy, the vitality, the sensitivity and presence of the living moment in which our life is revealed, is received. And so understanding how it works. This is not just sort of something you do at the beginning and get over with, and get on with the real stuff. Layers, more and more subtle layers of these forces and patternings play out throughout the whole journey of awakening, the whole journey of meditation, of human development. And so the first one that we might know is the sense of a kind of a a greedy wanting, wanting to have nice things, more things, good things, experiences, um, sensations. That sense of wanting to get something that I can have and hang on to that's going to kind of make me feel good. It's useful to distinguish this energy and force, this kind of selfish wanting or desire from a kind of more open and expansive aspiration or a sense of, kind of a calling in the heart, we might say, for peace, for freedom. This is not an unskillful expression of human life. In fact, it's powerful and beautiful. And it has as its characteristic actually something that kind of opens us. We feel when we're drawn in terms of what we love and care about deeply. We might call it desire. We might even say, I long for or I crave freedom. But it has a different feeling. The craving, the the, the desire that's self-contractive, that, that kind of tightens us, is something we can feel in a very different way. And it's always about some kind of object or some kind of experience or some particular set of conditions that we're seeking for or seeking to sustain. Whereas that more open quality is something that, that is not so much about a particular event or object or situation. It's more the sense of a qualitative Potentiality that we're perhaps recognising the way we may be able to grow more into. And so that the quality that is associated with craving, that, or the, 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 sort of the dynamic that it arises out of in its unskillful, unhelpful way, is the idea that somehow this particular experience, or this particular object of attention, or this particular set of conditions that I want to get or want to keep, this will make me or keep me happy, make me or keep me satisfied or fulfilled. It's sort of like, when it's like this, then, ah. And there's this leaning forward into that moment when it's all the way I want it to be. Ah. Then it will be good. Then it will be good. You know, we have a moment in meditation where things go quiet, calm, we're peaceful. Probably most of you have had a moment or two like this. And do you notice how quickly comes in this? Ah, got it, it's mine, great, how did I do that? How can I keep it? And a moment later it's gone because we've just contracted <coughs> the, that grasping at the experience. And we see, not only is it painful, but it doesn't work. It squeezes the very life and the aliveness out of that which we loved or appreciated at the moment before. That sense of craving in the way it makes it hard to even enjoy what comes that is lovely because there's always the sense of how do I keep it how do I keep it and I remember being struck um not so long ago in the summer in fact I was, I was teaching a retreat in America at uh inside meditation society in Barrie, Massachusetts and while I was walking um by the small pond, not that small, but medium-sized, I guess you'd say, pond, um, I saw the beaver come out across, swimming across the lake. And it was so delightful. So I was just so loving it. And I was teaching the retreat. I wasn't sitting it. And I had my phone in my pocket. And it started to get harder and harder to enjoy looking at the beaver and, and not get my phone out and try and take a photograph of it. And it was like, you know, I know about this. I know that the photograph's not going to be that good. But there's this urge to want to somehow get it and keep it and then show it to other people and somehow make more of it. And in the end, I did try and get a photograph and failed, of course, and spent the last few moments I could have enjoyed watching and being present with the beaver, somehow trying to keep the beaver. And there's a kind of a, I think, a useful sort of compassionate, hmm, look at that, look what we do, look what I do, look what we do with experience to see how that goes on. And so the practice asks us in that situation to see what does it mean to let go here? It doesn't mean that we somehow push away the experience if something lovely arises. But that we let go of our grip on it. The sense, the idea that if I can just get hold of this, if I can keep it, or if I can reproduce it or maintain it, that this will somehow fulfill me more than just the experience of right now and receiving it right as it is. And so much of what we find ourselves drawn away from our experience, from our life, is towards the idea of repeating something that was good in the past. Isn't it? That's When we think we want something, it's because we had something like it before and we want it again. It's like trying to repeat the past. And it locks us into this past-future dynamic where we're lost to the present so easily. So there's this kind of craving, grasping, trying to hold on to and keep. And it has a contraction to it, as I said. Likewise with aversion. In a way, it's the reverse. It's the same kind of... Tendency, but reflected in the opposite direction. The wish to get rid of resistance, fear, irritation, anger, judgment, boredom. They all have the effect of trying to distance ourselves. Rather than trying to get it and keep it, it there's something I'm trying to get rid of or keep away from me in some way. And we find ourselves pulling away or shrinking, tightening in fear sometimes. And just noticing what that's like when some physical discomfort arises. Or perhaps a thought pattern or a memory that's uncomfortable for us. Or the anticipation, the projection, the fantasy of some future scenario which we really don't want to happen, which we feel anxious about it because it might. And just noticing again the contraction, the tightening, being able to recognize, oh, this aversion or this fear. In the immediate experience, it's that sense of wanting to get rid of this and seeing, can I just stop right here? Can I relax? Can I soften and open, as we spoke about? Noticing that, of course, uncomfortable experiences have their place. And they ask us, they call us to pay attention, to see. Sometimes we do need to do something. We might be feeling aversion, but we realize that also, actually the degree of pain in the situation is, it's actually a little more than as wise to ignore. Now, I don't know if she's here but one of our (coughs) community had an accident early this morning walking down the stairs found actually hurt her ankle and it was like a lot of pain and a feeling of need to go and get this checked out and it was good to do that because it was broken and so one could have just gone oh it's just unpleasant maybe it's just aversion maybe I should just be with that And sometimes actually really wise to do something about it. And yet noticing that taking care of such a situation is different than the reaction that goes, no, I don't want this. Because actually it's already happened. And with physical discomfort or difficult emotions that might arise, that sense of bringing kindness to it, but at the same time also acknowledging, okay, this is here, this is here. What's going to be helpful in meeting this experience? That urge to prevent it, and the way we get pulled again into the future, and the wish to try and prevent it happening again. That whole patterning of anxiety and fear, as I was saying in one of the one of, in the small groups that I was meeting with this afternoon. The interesting things about fear is that it it's always about something that's associated with or appears that it would repeat a past experience that we found difficult or painful in some way or form. That's what fear is about. It's about trying to anticipate not repeating the pain of the past. And it has a place. There's a learning and a wisdom we get from understanding what's skillful and helpful in life. So it has its place in that. But at the same time, the truth is we that thing that we remember, we survived it. And the fear often has the sense that I won't survive this. I won't be able to cope. It won't be possible. And yet, of course, the truth is we did. Because that's why we're here. That's why the fear is here. If we'd been annihilated by it, we wouldn't be afraid. It might be something else, somewhere else, but I have no idea what that would be. None of us do. So, to be respectful of the power of this force, of this wish to not experience, and to understand it, you know, it, it's not personal, any more than that desire energy, that craving, urge, wanting. It's like, that's, you know, to get survival needs met. Likewise, the aversion comes out of the urge to, to protect ourselves, the biological wiring that says protect the soft. Juicy, vulnerable organism—that's actually something precious and needing of protection. You know, and the very earliest expressions of it are in the—you know—the sense of a, uh, a single, single-celled life form. You know, millions of years ago, floating in the general soup of the sea as it was then. And if it encounters something that's toxic to it, it kind of has to tighten up its. Sort of little thin membrane skin so that toxic thing doesn't get in. It tightens it up in order to protect itself. And of course, we're made of, it's about 10 trillion, is it? Something like that, 10 trillion little bags of juice cells. And some of them will go, hey! tighten up to try and not let something get in. And actually, it doesn't work that well for us, to be honest. We're rather more complicated beings. And those little ones we started off as in our, in our history. we might not really think of them as our personal ancestors, but they are. And so we see oh, these, these patterns, they, they have a lot of history. We're probably not going to bring it to an end on the first day of our week-long retreat, and possibly not by the end. I'm not saying you won't, but it's not guaranteed. So we, we need to learn to work with these. And again, to notice that the, the power that the, or the power this whole patterning has is the way in which it sort of believes that this situation, this experience, this set of conditions is somehow going to prevent me from being happy, from being fulfilled, from being at peace in my life. It's like I somehow need to get rid of them or prevent them happening in order to find. What I'm looking for. And yet no particular conditions have that power in and of themselves. It's something we attribute in our mental process. And as soon as we start to see that, see how that works, there's a lovely um, line from Mark Twain where he talks about the way in which fear, or he, he's not talking about it, but sort of understanding the way fear actually works for us. And it's like, What's actually really helpful to understand, for I just say, is that this little quote: fear is always happening in the present. It's always happening right here. Sometimes we need to give it a lot of space. We need to bring some kindness. We need to support ourselves. Sometimes we need to seek support. But it's always happening right here in the present, and yet it tells a story about the future. It takes us into the future if we don't see what's going on. And that's its power, because when it takes us into the future, we're actually disconnected from where we are. And we can't resolve the thing we're afraid of in the future, because it doesn't exist there. The future hasn't happened yet. We can only resolve it in the present, because that's where it's happening. And in terms of that, what Mark Twain rather wonderfully said, apparently, he said, you know, almost all of the worst experiences of my life Never actually happened. But that anticipation of what will be difficult becomes the worst experience of our life. And the disconnect that happens when we're caught in the force and the power of that aversive reaction, that aversion, that pulling away, that pushing away, that distancing, the inner disconnection that happens is deeply painful to us. And so the, the practice asks us, the response that's called for is a sense of, let it be. be. Can I be with this? Not so much let it go as if it would go away, but let it be. Can I let this experience be? Can I let myself be? This is a profound offering to ourselves and to our life, to let this be. And yet see what might be needed to support my heart, my mind, my body in this condition to bring some kind resonance some sense of friendliness some sense of care sense of softening and widening as we spoke about the next of these uh, these challenges we, we, again we spoke about a restlessness and to sort of amplified energy I don't think I need to say too much because we spoke to it quite a bit But a couple of things I want to mention there that I think are really helpful. It requires a certain kind of courage to stay with restlessness. Because something in us really doesn't want to. That intensity of activation sometimes described as as sort of like agitation and um, worry that sort of seems to come or agitation that's in it. Learning to relax with it. At first, we might think, "No way! I don't. I can't. I don't want to." And yet, we could perhaps uh, try the suggestion of uh, my wife Catherine, who I teach with here and elsewhere. Sometimes she says, "You know, maybe you could see if you could be the first person to die of restlessness. Mm -hmm. And what would that be like? You know, am I willing? Am I that committed?" what's happening see it it hasn't happened before so it's probably not going to be that you would be but on the other hand it would be quite a way to go wouldn't it the first person to have died of restlessness what we can notice is that often there's a kind of a restlessness that comes it's more an agitation energy that comes from remorse it comes from a sense of regret or anger of nostalgia or sometimes guilt, to do with our past life. And interestingly, one of the things that's not often spoken about in um, the context of the precepts that Gavin spoke about so wonderfully yesterday evening, with the precepts, one of the elements that they're understood as offering us is a, a basis from which a certain calm and peace and well-being arises in our own heart. Not just that they're at safety for others, which they are, but equally and importantly, that they are, there's a safety for oneself, and that the heart can rest in our wholesome behavior, and it cannot rest when it's sitting on the ripples and the impact of where we've acted in ways that caused harm to ourselves or others. And so, that some of that restlessness energy is actually resolved by the inner commitment towards. Not that we can be perfect, but to a sense of actually so far as I'm able, I wish and I intend and I commit to minimise the harm that I may cause or contribute to in the world. And with the future, also, restlessness engages in this kind of fear, anxiety or excitement and hope, and there's a lot of energy in it. Often The effect of excitement or anxiety in the heart and mind is to lead us to try and push too hard to create or prevent a particular experience. And then the restlessness is the experience of all that energy pushing when it actually can't do what it's trying to do. And so we just feel all that charge to make something happen in meditation. It's often where restlessness comes as I'm trying to get my mind to be quiet or I'm trying to do something more intensely than is useful. So sometimes it's useful to move our attention away from the object of aversion or desire and that actually helps with the agitation element by just moving our attention to something more neutral, more steady more calm. The body, the breath can be helpful in this way. And relaxing with the restless energy, giving attention to the out-breath, noticing the calming, releasing, softening, dropping dropping qualities, that that is the kind of the energetic signature of the out-breath part of the breathing cycle. And that often allows Some draining away. Again, not to stop or to fix, but just allow what's supportive there. And in another way, do nothing. When there is restlessness, just don't do anything. Just see. If I don't add anything to this, what happens? And it actually begins to slowly change and eventually drain away. Sleepiness, dullness, sloth and torpor. It's lovely. It's sort of sloth that is. Sort of. In some ways, I find it. Although it's it's not attractive as a, a way to be perceived. There's something in that word that seems quite attractive as a place to hang out. It's sort of like, Oh yeah, I'd quite like to. There's there's something, at least for me, quite attractive about having being able to just curl up and go to sleep, which is kind of what it sort of invites or suggests. It seems. And, of course, there's a real place for relaxing and for rejuvenating, for allowing ourselves to catch up from the over-intensity of many of our lives. But the kind of sleepiness that's a fading and a disappearing and a disconnecting doesn't really serve us. So, again, we spoke this afternoon as quality of being upright, of um, opening the eyes, of paying attention to the in-breath, sitting upright, raising the arms up in the air, standing up. There's another one I didn't mention, and um, the Buddha speaks about something that apparently he found useful, which was to pull on one's earlobes as a response to drowsiness. Now, I haven't found it particularly works for me, but you're welcome to try it, see if it works. I have sometimes wondered if the Buddha was challenged by this particular hindrance to a considerable degree. I don't know if you've seen many images of them. (laughs) but with all respect, it does look like, you know, maybe there's been a bit of this going on. I don't know. (laughs) But as a human being, it's certainly possible. (coughs) Drowsiness and sleepiness has this quality of disengaging. like Or wanting, when we identify with it, to disengage. The interesting thing is, When we're sitting up trying to practice, it could be quite an unpleasant experience. I don't know if you've noticed that, feeling drowsy and it's like, oh, oh. The exact same experience when you're pulling your blankets or your duvet up to your nose and about to go to sleep. It is so nice, that exact same experience. And the experience of feeling bright and awake when you're pulling your blankets up to your nose. It's really unpleasant. Have you noticed that? Now I need to sleep, I want to sleep, but I feel really bright. It's so interesting how it's contextual. It's not objectively pleasant or unpleasant. It's because of the idea that I don't want this to be happening now, that it becomes difficult. So what we need to do with that, I mean, again, maybe say, we we said, but maybe we need a bit more rest. Maybe we need to check and see, is there something that I'm avoiding? They may or may not be, but just open to the question. A little curiosity can be helpful. It brings energy also if we can be genuinely curious, but also a sense of commitment, of engagement. One of uh, one of the senior teachers here, uh, Martine Batchelor, friend and colleague for many years. She. Uh, writes in uh, her book the book of uh, teachings and her life with her teacher Master Kusan and, um, in Korea of one occasion when, uh, when Kusan Sunim as he was known he, he was going into retreat and was feeling a lot of drowsiness but he was so committed to his practice that he practiced for seven days on tiptoes and it's like wow yeah, he really wanted to stay awake Imagine, seven days on tiptoes. I think seven minutes, and it's pretty hard work. I'm not saying you have to do it, but there's something for me inspiring about that. Yes, if we really want to stay awake, we can find a way to do it. I mean, it mostly works if you just take away your blankets and your cushions. It's really hard to fall asleep when you're uncomfortable. Again, I'm not promoting discomfort, but it's a question of what, how willing am I to be to do what it takes to stay awake? and to know that of course if that's not what's going on then sometimes taking real care with the right amount of comfort I have exactly the right cushion so I have two yoga blocks sitting on an inflatable backrest inflated just the right amount so just so you know I'm not knocking the idea of finding something to sit on that really works for you But that sense of engaging is what we need when we're drowsy, when we feel sleepy, when we're losing interest. And the fifth hindrance, challenge is doubt. A sort of a sceptical, undermining tendency that arises in us that isn't particularly bright or interested. It's not that kind of curious doubting quality that's sort of wondering about things in an open way it's often a much more resigned or hopeless or cynical negativity it's like it's no good it doesn't work i don't think i can do it and it's actually it's not it sounds like doubt but actually it's not really doubt it's actually quite certain it's it's i've already decided for sure i can't do it it doesn't work it's all hopeless and it's just phrased in a sort of a doubtful sort of way This particular hindrance often and classically arises consequence on or conditioned by the presence of other hindrances. So we're trying to be mindful and we keep getting distracted because there's aversion or because there's some kind of reactivity or restlessness. And we start to feel, oh, it's not working, I can't do it. It's hopeless. We kind of want to give up. Because we've in some way identified with what's going on, thinking somehow we're defined by this process. Not seeing it, oh, here's one of the challenges, what's needed here? I can't do it, it's not working. It's so often, you know, the story is told of someone in their meditation. Often on the first day or two or three who gets to this point where it's, you know, and they come and report to me or another teacher, it's just just hopeless, you know. I've been sitting, I've been trying to be mindful and practice, and, you know, in the end, just give up and look around. And it seems like everybody else is so mindful, so present, so still. They, You know, it's like as if everyone else is just on the verge of full awakening, you know, 50 Buddhas-to-be and one overcooked vegetable (laughs) that's me you know and we somehow form this view of course just as we're sitting there slumped in hopelessness and giving up completely the person right next door might be looking over and going wow they're sitting really still they're really present we don't know what's going on for each other but that tendency to think that somehow I can't do it and it's just me it's not true It's not true. And we often have a kind of unrealistic expectation of what's possible. If we've spent years and decades of our lives living unconsciously, feeding at times enthusiastically certain patterns, they're not just going to stop because we decide to spend a day doing something a little differently. They really aren't. It doesn't mean they don't change, that they aren't malleable, but it takes some time. And it also takes a certain kind of openness to the in a way the vastness the profoundness of what we're taking on here to transform the human heart and mind is is a noble and challenging undertaking not a simple or an easy one what we've been doing here today most human beings would never do this most of the people you know probably would never do this And that sense of somehow having an unrealistic, not quite acknowledging what we've taken on. And having an unrealistic expectation or demand upon ourselves. We can be so easily caught in that way. And there's a lovely story which for me illustrates this, the sense of um, how we do that. And how perhaps we could look at it differently. A a very sincere practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism who for 20 years had been engaged very uh, devotedly in their in their meditation and their inner development, had the the very fortunate opportunity to meet and have a brief interview with his holiness, the Dalai Lama. And this 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 practitioner was very excited and very sort of looking forward, knowing they'd just have a little while, but just this opportunity was like precious jewel, precious And, and so he went to um into the interview and sat down and started telling his holiness about the, the practice and the practice he was engaged in and all the different ways that it was difficult and the struggles he had and how he'd really like to be able to, you know, somehow get through that Or And 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 as he was speaking about all these different challenges and he's saying, yeah, for, you know, the first, uh, there was all these years of practice and practice and practice. I still can't do this. And, uh, and his holiness looked at him apparently with real compassion and tenderness. He said, It's difficult, isn't it? He said, you know, it's like that in the early years of practice. Mm. And I, I find that so lovely. If one thinks of the first 20 years as the early years, it's like, oh, suddenly there's a bit more space, there's a bit more room. We don't know how many lifetimes some of these patterns have been established. And whether we believe in some Particular, personal or individual process of rebirth or whether we don't. And to be honest, we can't really know either way. But in terms of the way in which our life and our ancestry in terms of life itself has these patterns deeply ingrained, for sure, they've been here a long time. And yet we can meet them. We can start to see them. We can start to find space mm-hmm. in them. With this tendency of doubt, What we actually need to bring forth is a sense of trust. And how do we do that? The way the Buddha speaks of it and the suggestion is to bring to mind, if we're not quite sure if it's possible for us, to remember the wholesome things that we've done, the moments of courage, the moments of kindness, the moments of forbearance or restraint in our life, to turn our attention to those the good qualities, the expressions of kindness or generosity, even small things, to allow the heart to be nourished and uplifted, to remember what is possible for us that is wholesome. Because the, the, the undermining doubt gets a grip on us because our attention is tightened around the sense of what I can't do. Often, as I said, with some unrealistic expectation of what I should be able to do. And then engaging again. See if we can find some sense of buoyancy or uplift. In the story of the Buddha, it said he, he touched the earth in the night of his awakening when he was challenged by doubt. What are you doing here? What right have you got to be here, seeking to awaken? He touched the earth. and the image we can see of the Buddha touching the earth up there. So I don't like to bow down and just take a moment to pay my respect sometimes. Just sort for of The life and the practice and the teaching that he offered. Remarkable life he had. Remarkable teaching and offering. And that sense of just, he he just, in a way, bringing to mind the, the lives and the practices and the endeavors of cultivating the wholesome that had gone before. That allowed him to find that buoyancy and sense of trust. Again. And so sometimes this is a useful creative response if we find ourselves doubting and feeling undermined by this. To see these forces, these hindrances, these challenging patterns as something which arise and pass in the heart and mind. They're not ultimately who we are, but we need to learn to recognize them, to be able to handle them. To find a steadiness within all that comes, all that moves, the ways that we are challenged. To start to recognize this capacity to receive, to touch, to be open in the presence of even that which is challenging and difficult. And when we're not able to be open, to open to that too. To see this to see that there's a, a sense of possibility that has a natural brightness to it in this practice of wakefulness, of presence, of sensitivity. The quote from the Buddha that I offered in the beginning, this heart-mind is luminous, Radiant. It is clouded by attachments that visit. The Buddha goes on to say that for those who do not understand this, there is no development of this heart-mind. There is no cultivation of this heart-mind. And then he says, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant. It is free from the attachments which visit it. For those who understand this, there is development of this heart and mind. To understand it can be both clouded, but also not bound. The capacity we have to meet the experience reveals both dimensions. And it's this that we are learning, this that we are exploring. To see in this very meeting, to know, to experience what it is that in itself reveals the natural luminosity of our life, the natural brightness, fluidity and freedom of the awakened heart, the awakened mind. And it is this that our practice invites us to come to know more and more deeply. So I'd like to finish with a poem by Ryokan, who was a Zen monk who lived a life as a hermit and a a poet in the uh, the mountains of Japan and. uh, I think the 17th, 18th century, one of my favorite characters from the sort of the rich sort of uh, realm of practitioners of old. So, Ryo Khan, he wrote once, he said, The rain has ended, the storm has passed, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we have the courage and the clarity to meet whatever comes with kindness, with openness and with steadiness of heart and mind, to know both the process by which this heart-mind is bound all over. And equally it's possibility to know freedom right here and right now. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings, of all that lives. for your practice. We have some time for walking now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.